To those who can hear me, I say, do not despair. The misery that is now upon us is but the passing of greed, the bitterness of men who fear the way of human progress. The hate of men will pass and dictators die, and the power they took from the people will return to the people. Because history has shown us that courage can be contagious, and hope can take on a life of its own. I will bring you hope, and I ask only one thing in return. We move now, together. Not at all. Hope is not lost today. It is found. Hope is what keeps you going. Even if the whole world is telling you to move, it is your duty to plant yourself like a tree, look them in the eye, and say no. You move. Welcome to the Skiffy and Fandy Show. I'm Paul Weimer, and today on Signal Boost, we have Sean Grisby here to talk about smoke eaters. Say hello, Sean. Hey, hey, how's everybody doing? Welcome to the show. I'm glad to be here. So why don't we start, take it from the top, since this is uh, a debut novel. Why don't you tell the readers the, the elevator pitch for smoke eaters? Sure. Uh, in three words, it's firefighters versus dragons. Uh, if you want to add a few more words to that, it's firefighters versus dragons in the future. Basically, if you want to compare it to movies, I, I tell people it's Reign of Fire meets Backdraft. So you, the main character is Cole Brannigan, and he is 60. He is a week out from retiring from the fire service. The year is 2121. Dragons have risen from the earth. They have uh, destroyed America, but we're trying to hold it together. Uh, society's basically broken up into a series of city-states that are on their own, and dragon calls, dragon emergencies have been relegated to municipalities. They take care of it, but it's not the firefighters who do it. It's actually an offshoot of the fire department called the smoke eaters. They're very secretive. Nobody knows exactly what they do other than they come in and kill the dragons. And so Cole Brannigan is a week out from retirement, and there's a house fire, the last one of his career possibly, and Everything's going fine as far as house fires go until he realizes that there is a dragon inside, and so he goes in to save his crew, and that's when he discovers that he can breathe dragon smoke uh, because stuff goes wrong, and he has to remove his air pack, which they tell us in the fire service never to do because <laughs> you'll die. Uh, and so he is uh, not so much forced but very – passionately coerced into giving up retiring from the fire service and transferring over to the smoke eaters because they are the ones who can breathe the dragon smoke and slay the dragons. You have the our protagonist who's just about ready to get out of it all and gets sucked into a greater world. So why did you pick a protagonist who was a week from retirement, say, rather than, say, I don't know, 25-year-old hotshot on a fire department? <laughs> I guess the, the easiest answer is that it's it's just been done so many times before uh, the young you know hero and all that and I did I didn't want to I I try not to do the typical thing in my writing uh, a period but it also maybe has to do with the fact that when I was writing it or when I got the idea for it at least I was in rookie school for the fire department again because I transferred to another city and the city although you know they respect that you've come from another department as a professional firefighter they make you go through the academy again because they want to make sure they're not just taking your word for it that you know what you're doing and i guess i got the idea that you know what if it was someone who was a fully 
involved <laughs> a firefighter who's had a full career behind them uh, who has to do it all over again. Uh, plus, it, it just made it more interesting. And uh, Old Man's War, of course, is one of my favorite books, John Scalzi. And that was an older protagonist, too. And I really hadn't seen that done uh, since then. Um, I'm sure it has. I just I, I personally haven't read anything with that. And I, I kind of wanted to uh, go down that road again. You mentioned you had transferred fire departments. And we see that in the book because he's because when Cole is brought into the smoke eaters, he basically starts off at the bottom. What else from your experience in the in the fire service did you bring into uh, into your writing, and how did it inform it? There's there's a, there's lots of crunchy detail. I wonder if you could tell readers a little bit about it. Yeah, uh, definitely the camaraderie and the relationships between the smoke eaters. Uh, it, it, a lot of people don't see uh, w- what it really means to be a firefighter. Uh, they they see the Firefighters who come out and give school presentations and things like that. And that, that is us at our absolute most professional <laughs> and, and clean. But the real firefighters, you know, that we, we, uh, gig each other. We, we pull pranks. We, we, the fire service, the, there's no room for failure. <laughs> I, I mean, everybody understands because that's how I learn, but, but they, they give each other a lot of, uh, smack talk and and not necessarily hazing, but that's that's the real that's the real thing. And besides camaraderie, definitely the fire science. I wanted to make that real, even though we're dealing with you know creatures and, and dragons. Um, I, I wanted to use the 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 way fire behaved in a real real way, uh, and and the way Cole uh, is has a relationship with it in, in his career uh, uh, because in, in Backdraft, which is one of my favorite movies, don't get wrong, but fire doesn't back into a room and close, close the door. That's just ridic- <laughs> ridiculous. Uh, I, I kind of wanted to, to turn that on its head. Like, you know, and actually the guy who, who wrote Backdraft is reading it right now. So <laughs> I don't want to hate on his script or, or his movie. He, he did a great job. It's a great to make it more real. Also, when you enter a structure and uh, it's burning, you can't see a thing. I know for cinematic purposes, you you have to make it less smoky because otherwise the audience wouldn't be able to see anything. But uh, with this book, I definitely wanted the fire to be real as well uh, as the camaraderie. As a dragons have reemerged from this earth, so why why set the book about a century ahead of now? Why why set it in the future rather than say the present? I guess partly because I knew. I didn't I didn't really people have described smoke eaters as urban fantasy in the future, but I really didn't set out to write an urban fantasy. And I guess that's what I was kind of I wanted to avoid. At least I, I didn't want to do the same old thing uh, where, where, you know, you're you're in a, a metropolis and everything's normal and oh, there's dragons and that kind of thing. I, I wanted it to be different. And I love both science fiction and fantasy. And I also love mixing the two together. So there, there was that. And I also realized that the, the technology that we have presently wouldn't really be great for, <laughs> for fighting dragons. So I kind of wanted uh, technology to be at a place where we could have laser swords and powered uh, armored jumpsuits and, uh, and things like that. So, so the, the the United States of twenty one twenty one and the Canada of twenty one twenty one are rather strange places. So, why don't you tell me a little bit how you decided to build your future? 
Oh, I, I'm totally a pantser when I when I write. Um, I don't really plot out much. Uh, I, I may kind of see where I'm going down the road, but I don't. I'm not an outliner. Um, so I really, especially with this book, I, I let my imagination take the reins, and I just if I felt a gut feeling like yeah, this is where I want to take it, I went with it. Um, and th- and that could be especially seen with the rays, um, which a lot of people love, and a lot of people or or few people are confused by, <laughs> but I just, that's just something I saw. And I said, that's what I want to do. Uh, that, that first scene, I, I saw a wraith floating over a, an ashen wasteland and I, and I kept questioning why this has nothing to do with dragons, but it's one of those things I just went with and, and kind of tied it in um, with Canada. It was actually uh, initially Neo Tokyo that they went to. Uh, and my agent, uh, before we had even taken it out uh, to publishers said, you know, I don't know if you should set it in Tokyo. Where would be somewhere else you could make? And I said, well, hey, how about Canada? Um, especially I like toying with the notion <laughs> of, you know, America, at least now, is always talking about we need to build a wall. Well, what if Canada built a wall and kept us out? Uh, and and they had all the uh, technology uh, that we didn't and could survive dragons better than we could and had a way better handle on it than us. And uh, – I really wanted Canada to be to be I, I kind of journey through different genres in this book in a way. And Canada was totally cyberpunk for me. They're also kind of not to spoil too much for our listeners. They're kind of a frenemy of the United States, especially with their how they decide to treat dragons and their 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 population's relationship with dragons. I found that really interesting. In the United States is all 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 about destroying the dragons. The Canada has a very different view and I. I appreciated how you had contrasted those those points of view across uh, across the uh, Canadian Great Wall, as it were. Oh yeah, yeah. It, uh, it, I, I kind of turned up the 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 typical view of you know America's uh, scene, you know, as this arrogant, you know, gun toting type of place, uh, um, and you know, shoot first, ask questions later, which I, I disagree with. But you know, I played with that. And, and versus Canada, who is you know sometimes viewed as more pacifist and you know more understanding, and and kind of I kind of worked that in. But I I really wanted Canada to be basically a different world, even though they're not that far from not that far from you either, Paul, from where you live. So it, it's just funny to have this completely different world a few miles away over this wall. So since Neo Tokyo was your original conception for where the characters go to, I mean, Canada is useful given that you said in Ohio. So why Ohio of all places to set your book? Uh, first reason would be Ohio is where the first professional fire department was established. I did not know that. Yes, and uh, so that's that's that was a tip of the hat to it. Um, and not to go off on a tangent, but but as far as tip of the hats. Uh, I named my character Cole Brannigan, uh, his last name at least, from Francis Brannigan, who is a legend in the fire service uh, as far as – he was a very famous fire instructor uh, who wrote the book literally on building construction and how we need to be aware of, of that so we don't die uh, with buildings falling on us. Uh, and his family has actually reached out to me out of, out of the blue and told me they were reading the book and asked if I had named the character after their grandpa, and I said – Wow, first of all, but yes, I did, um, which is well, very surreal for me. Uh, and uh, I kind of went off on a tangent, even though I said I, I wasn't going to try to. Uh, but uh, other than uh, 
the reason Ohio was the setting uh, because that was the first professional fire department uh, was because my agent is from Ohio and he'd been talking about how he, he'd love to represent a book that was set in Ohio. And I said, well, hey, I'll give you one. So <laughs> it all kind of uh, converged. And he was a big help in, in uh, especially the scene where they go to uh, the amusement park. Uh, that's, that's an actual place. And uh, he, he knew about it. So he kind of gave me some some insider information about it yeah see the point i've heard of it i've never actually been there but i've actually heard of it. it's like oh that's that's a real place it's still around in 2021 i mean that that's that whole scene kind of reminded me a bit weirdly of zombie land yeah actually <laughs> when i was writing it i felt the same way uh although just to let people know there there are no zombie clowns in the in the book no just wraiths and dragons which is bad enough yeah <laughs> i didn't want to make it worse so Smoke Eaters is your debut novel, but it's not your only novel that you have in the works. Why don't you tell us what else you have coming up? Absolutely. Uh, it's September 4th of this year, uh, Daughters of Forgotten Light is being released uh, by Angry Robot Books. And I wrote that actually before Smoke Eaters. Uh, and they had had it, and they just decided to go with Smoke Eaters first and then came back and said, hey, we'd, we'd love to work with you on some other stuff. Uh, let's you want to go with daughters? I said, heck yeah. And, uh, also a sequel. Um, and that's Ash Kickers. That's the sequel to Smoke Eaters. But, uh, to describe Daughters of Forgotten Light, it's in the future and women are, who are considered unwanted and non-compliant are sent away to this prison, floating prison city in space where they've developed their own society of motorcycle gangs, uh, being the top of the hierarchy. And uh, the motorcycles ride on laser wheels and the gangs rule over uh, dwellers who are there just trying to survive. And they're all split and they've got a truce going on, but it's very shaky. And then one day a shipment arrives and in the shipment, along with, you know, supplies and food and stuff, is a baby. And so the truce is basically shattered because now they're fighting over protecting the baby. And uh, back on Earth, a senator who sent a drone to uh, the city called Oubliette, uh, trying to gather information for the vice president so they can essentially wipe out Oubliette and use it as an arc, basically, because uh, the Earth is going into another ice age, uh, finds out that it may be her baby that got sent. So that's really cool. It's like the Warriors meets uh, Sons of Anarchy meets Tron meets Bitch Planet, the comic book. In space! In space, yes. In space. That that sounds excellent. I, I I look forward to that. And where can people find you on the internet? Uh, they can go to my website. It's uh, seangrigsby.com uh, or Twitter. I'm heavily involved on Twitter, uh, and that's easy enough too. It's at seangrigsby, and I respond to everybody. I, I don't I don't ignore anyone. If, if especially if you compliment me on my books, I'll definitely say, say thank you at least. Okay, thank you so very much for being on and to talk about your book. Thanks, Paul. Welcome to the Skiffy and Fanty Show. I'm Elizabeth, and today on Signal Boost, we have Thraya Dyer, author of Echoes of Understory. Welcome to the show, Thraya. Hi! Thanks for having me! Always a pleasure. So why don't you tell us a little bit about the Titans Forest series? Well, 
Well, so it's my first trilogy of novels from Tor Books. Um, the first one, Crossroads of Canopy, came out last year and Echoes of Understory is out this year, just last month. And it's set in a giant rainforest, uh, kilometres or miles high for Americans. And the conceit is that the city of Canopy is so high off the ground, they don't even know or care what's down below. Uh, it's dark down there. There's a magical barrier to keep the monsters out. But, of course, things happen, either characters falling down or monsters making their way up, which is fun. And um, I've been able to put in lots of my loves into the books. I love rainforests. I love animals. I'm a vet. I love martial arts. And I love world building and gods and pantheons and all those kinds of schemes of the powerful. So that's in there as well. So Broadleaf Forest is more typical of uh, traditional fantasy. So was choosing to set it in more of an Australasian rainforest a case of writing what you know, or was there something else you were exploring? Um, I have always felt a bit sad that, um, you know, hunting deer is just such a typical fantasy thing to do, but if you changed it to hunting a kangaroo, suddenly it seems to really throw people off. I think in my sort of happy future world in my head it would just be as normal to have um, kangaroos in fantasy as deer but I, I've put a lot of non-Australian things in as well I really got out of my comfort zone as a scientist where things belong in their proper ecological niches and instead I've mixed up marsupials and placentals and there's tapirs and jaguars and things um, all mixed in together. So, yeah, it's not just Australian stuff, but I have sneaked quite a bit of Australian stuff in there. I know what you mean about um, it uh, throwing off people sometimes. I remember reading um, The Ill-Made Mute um, by uh, Cecilia Dart Thornton, um, and it mentions the, um, the rosellas that flit through the forest, um, and that made me take a step back and go, oh, okay, this is not quite your traditional elvish sort of uh, fairy tale forest, which is kind of the vibe that the rest of the book gives up. What I love about that, though, is that if you weren't Australian and you didn't know what a rosella was, you might think that it was a made-up fantasy creature. <laughs> well, it's true. They are such beautiful birds too. Yeah, I mean, when you think about people like Tolkien, all the forests that have got oak trees and things, and they've got acorns, which I personally would not want to live on for any extended point of time. I think having tropical trees and mangoes and passion fruits and things sounds like a, a more exciting forest um, culinary-wise as well. Certainly more delicious. Yes. <laughs> so each book in your series so far has featured a different protagonist. Um, so what led you to change things up? Um, well, part of that is the story of how one book turned into three. Um, when I turned in Crossroads of Canopy to my agent, he was like, oh, this is great, but do you think maybe you could make the 
story a bit happier, maybe the protagonist a bit more um, likeable. And I said, no, but I could write a second book and with a different protagonist and put those things in. And um, so it uh, changed then from um, just Una being the protagonist to um, – so and she's the a sort of magic-wielding character to having a non-magical warrior character for the second one who has a little bit more personal integrity. And then in the third book, there is a sort of smooth-talking sort of social climber character who is different again. So – yeah, I'm not just retreading the same old uh, personality type over and over. It's fun. Variety is definitely good, and I admit that I have been dying to know who the protagonist of the next book is <laughs> um, and have had a few guesses, so um, now I'll be able to adjust those accordingly. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so you mentioned pantheons, um, and the gods play a very active role in the world of Titan's Horror. So were there any particular inspirations you drew on for this? Oh, absolutely. For the um, second book, Echoes of Understory, I borrowed heavily from the Greek myths of Atalanta, who, you know, she was based a little bit on the goddess Artemis. She was orphaned at birth, um, raised by a bear in the forest, and then in some of the stories... There are three hunters that kill the bear and take over her upbringing and teach her to be this amazing hunter. And then one of the stories about her is the Caledonian boar hunt where all these great heroes get assembled into a team to hunt down the boar. So I think the the king insults the goddess by not performing a sacrifice. So she sends the boar to destroy the kingdom and kills innocent people and a whole bunch of dudes die when they try and defeat it. So Atalanta becomes part of this team of heroes and she's invited by, I think his name is Maliga. He secretly has the hots for her even though he's married. So when the other heroes object to this woman joining the hunt, he sort of convinces them that it's okay. And then she's the first to wound the boar. Maliga finishes it off and then he makes a gift of either the skin or the head, depending on which version, to Atalanta as her reward. And then um, his uncles get shirty that he's given away the skin to this woman. Um, so Malega has to kill his own uncles. And then his mother is forced to take sort of drastic action and she kills him by burning this magical log. And as the log is consumed, um, Maliga's life is consumed as well. So he dies in the end in the manner of all excellent Greek stories. Um, <laughs> and then, <laughs> the other story that I've borrowed from is um, of Atalanta and the Three Golden Apples, which you can Google if you've not read that one, but you will see um, the similarities there as well, I think. I can definitely see some uh, similarities between the story um, of Atalanta and Echoes of Understory. So um, it's really cool to see that laid out like that. Now, uh, Crossroads of Canopy was uh, recently nominated for a Dittmar Award, so congratulations. Hooray, thank you. So in addition to the nomination, the book got a bit of attention, appearing on the most anticipated list of several prominent science fiction and fantasy blogs. 
um, and I know you did a short book tour in Australia. So as a bit of an introvert, did you find the attention difficult? Uh, yes, is the short answer to that. Um, but I was extremely lucky to be touring with Cat Sparks, whose Lotus Blue, her debut science fiction novel came out last year, which has been described as um, Dune meets Mad Max. And I actually think it's much smarter than that description um, implies, but it's also got an excellent Australian bent and she is very extroverted. She's been in the scene so long, she knows everybody. So um, that is my advice to introverts. Um, see if you can connect with a bubbly, outgoing person who's going to drag you around and force you to talk to everybody. So that was pretty <laughs> awesome. It's kind of uh, tying into, like, the Orialis and things. Um, prior to writing Titan's Forest, you'd published a fair bit of short fiction. So will you be returning to that once you've finished the series, or do you have something else in mind? I've actually just sold a short science fiction story to Analog, which I'm really excited about. It'll be my third appearance there. And I really find that when I'm writing fantasy novels that my science fiction side is sort of erupts out in um in science fiction short stories on the side and um it's funny looking back at pretty much all the short stories that i've had published since since i sold the novels have been yeah hard science fiction um so that's a, a good balance and i think if i were to go to science fiction novels next then probably it would be the fantasy short stories that would be popping out on the side but um yeah i hope to keep going with both and novellas too i quite like novellas so we're recording on the international day of forests um this will uh, go live um a while later but um in honor of the occasion can you tell us what your favorite eucalyptus is <laughs> so the background to this is that about five minutes before this interview started, Elizabeth points out that this competition to um, heap poetic praise on your favourite eucalypt, and I immediately was like, wow, I wonder if the Sydney red gum still counts because it's classified as Angophora now. Would I get disqualified for that i just love its beautiful smooth red trunks and the twisty branches and then i'm like well if that's disqualified how about a blue gum it's got the smooth trunk as well and what kind of tree nerd goes off into this <laughs> i mean i love tallow woods i put them in my books and i put blood woods in my books too but i think maybe they've been moved out of the eucalyptus genus but does it count if they used to be a eucalyptus? Yeah, I I have I love a lot of eucalyptus trees, and, but I think I would go for the um, the Sydney red gum if it was allowed. <laughs> Sounds complicated. <laughs> well, you know they they start off by classifying things just based on how they look, and then they try and classify them whether they can um, interbreed with each other, but eucalypts are really incestuous and they can make all sorts of crosses and then the DNA evidence gets in there and mucks up the everything. So it is complicated, <laughs> but cool. But cool. Um, I was recently paid a trip to the Australian Botanic Garden and went for a walk through the eucalyptus lawn and the smell is just glorious. They are wonderful and there's, you know, there's the strawberry 
gum, I think it's called, and it smells like strawberry if you crush the leaves and there's all the lemony ones and they're just, they're great. So before we wrap up, can you let us know where we can find you and your work? Yes, so um, my website is com. I'm on the Twitters at Thoreadaya. Um, my work, um, I would love it if you would get it from your local bookshop, your bricks and mortar store, but secretly it's cheapest on Book Depository and, um, you know, the Kindle version is on Amazon. Well worth getting uh, the uh, paper version, though, for the stunning artwork of the cover. I just that they I have these amazing Mark Simonetti covers. I just could stare at them for hours. And one of my dreams as a child slash teenager, when I first thought maybe I could get published someday, was one of my favorite things to do was to look at a fantasy cover like a, a, a an imaginary city or a town and sort of imagine myself into that world and pick a house and say well that would be my house if I lived in that world and the crossroads of canopy cover I was just so nerded out sitting there going oh which one of these would be my house and it'll be this one and forcing all my friends to choose a house also so that was really and I just think the second cover is so powerful and evocative and the amazing light on the waterfall and the branches yeah so good so good i'm totally going to be looking through my library now and picking my house and all the covers (laughs) yes you have to tell me which one's your house (laughs) well thank you so much for joining us Therea, and for telling us about your book thank you for having me and thank you listeners for joining us on signal boost go check out echoes of understory Thank you for listening to the show. If you'd like to support us, you can find us at patreon.com slash skiffyinfanty. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can do so at our email at skiffyinfanty at gmail.com, on Twitter at skiffyinfanty, and on Facebook at the Skiffy Infanty Show. Our intro and outro music comes from Dimension by Creo. You can find out more about them at freemusicarchive.org. <laughs>